the best place to start seeing the sights in Amsterdam is at the central train station in the heart of the city. And that gives you the beautiful way to first encounter Amsterdam, right at the heart there of the traditional Dutch East Indies company. Coming up, find out how Amsterdam is an ideal city to explore on foot. Just don't be surprised if things get a little crazy for the King's Day national holiday. We all just go nuts. So we'll dress in orange, we'll have some orange makeup, orange hair, we'll go out on the street, nobody goes to work, nobody goes to school. Cassandra Overby tells us why walking vacations are more popular than ever. She recommends long-distance trails complete with vineyards, medieval villages, glorious cathedrals and castles. Mad King Ludwig's Way in Bavaria is a favorite. There's no more fitting way to honor a mad king than by walking a trail backwards, so that's actually what people do. You start where he died and you walk back to where he was born. We'll also check in on your summer travel plans in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Whether it's a leisurely city stroll or you're up for tackling a long-distance hiking trail, we'll get you ready to stretch your legs today on Travel with Rick Steves. An expert on cultural hiking adventures brings us her recommendations for enjoying Europe on foot in just a bit. And we'll open the phones at 877-333-7425 to hear what your summer travel plans are looking like this year. Let's start by exploring a city that essentially still looks like it did in its golden age of the 1600s. Amsterdam is an enticing mix of timeless and modern, assembled on a human scale. As you walk along the canals in the heart of the city, you'll encounter more bicycles than cars, plus street musicians, cozy shops, and lively cafes. If it's during the tourist season, you'll also bump into a lot of other travelers. Our guides for enjoying Amsterdam on foot are Tim Tendick and Rolinka Blooming. They've logged many miles taking visitors around Holland. Thank you both for being here. Mm, pleasure. Thank you. Now, Tim, you're an American who's guided a lot in the Netherlands. When somebody's planning a trip to Amsterdam, what are the options for neighborhoods you might choose to stay in? I've kind of approached Amsterdam from three different angles. One, staying outside the city itself and taking the train in, and that gives you the chance to start right at the central train station, which is a beautiful way to first encounter Amsterdam, right at the heart there of the traditional Dutch East Indies company. And then as well, in the uh, down in the museum quarter, there's some great places to stay there. And then you're really close to some of the finest art in Europe. And then the third one I did this last trip when I was over there for the holidays was I stayed just east of the station and found a nice little Airbnb in there. It's more of an immigrant neighborhood with a lot of uh, interesting shops and different restaurants. And then you just jump on a tram and you can be anywhere in Amsterdam within a few minutes. Assuming you embrace the public transit, you can basically be anywhere from anywhere in a couple of minutes. I mean, it's so good. Uh, absolutely. You got trains leaving four times an hour from nearby towns. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us like to stay in Harlem just a half hour away, which mm -hmm. is just a charming town as a home base to see the big crazy city. The area out, you talked about the um, museum area. That's also by Von Del Park. It, it is, right down in there. So you're near the Van Gogh Museum mm -hmm. and the Rijks Museum mm -hmm. and the Modern Art Museum mm -hmm. and the Concert Hall. And, and the Stedelijk. And yeah. the beautiful Von Del Park. Yeah. So that's more of an elegant neighborhood mm -hmm. that with a lot of old, feels like mansions that have been turned into small hotels. Mm -hmm. And then the immigrant neighborhood you talked about. Mm -hmm. Now that's interesting. You'd probably be able to locate that on Airbnb. Yeah. And that would give you a little more characteristic 21st century peek mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. Amsterdam life. Absolutely. Go up a little narrow staircase that creaks as you climb up and yeah. live as the Dutch do. So you have all those options. Now, of all the Americans that you've taken to Amsterdam as a tour guide, what are some of the misperceptions that strike you that Americans have that are overturned when they get there? 
there's kind of a full circle to it. People come in sometimes with the idea that Amsterdam is, is best known for its two, what we might consider vices, the sex industry and marijuana. Uh-huh. And they come in and people think that's all there is to the city. And before long, they realize Amsterdam is an incredible place with more history than any other place I know and a pivotal place in the history of Western civilization. I, w- I would go that far. And then um, after spending some time there and seeing that side of things and really getting to know it, you understand why those first two are part of that history. They're not at the top of it, but they're more symptoms of the liberty and the approach versus the point themselves. So there's sex and there's drugs, and they but are there. that's sort of a, um, a result of its importance from a trade capital mm-hmm. and, a, and a maritime mm-hmm. center. Rolinka, we always throw around the word the Dutch Golden Age. Uh, you grew up in the Netherlands. What does the Dutch Golden Age mean to the Dutch? That's far before I grew up. Uh, <laughs> far of before, all. hundreds of years. So we're talking 17th century, 1600s, uh-huh. Uh-huh. when the country was a tiny country like it still is today, but the boats were everywhere. So East Indies, West Indies, they brought back um, spices and tea and coffee and salt and pepper. That's when Porcelain. New York was named New Amsterdam. New, New Amsterdam. Just as a reminder mm-hmm. that the Dutch were ever a little country. Uh, yeah. Rolinka Blooming and Tim Tendick are our tour guides who specialize in the Netherlands. They're taking us around Amsterdam right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's say we're we're settled in the Netherlands, wherever we want to make our hotel. You've got different uh, regions of Amsterdam that you could explore. If you're looking for charming Amsterdam, cute Amsterdam, you're not going to walk down the main street, Damrak. What's Damrak all about, Tim? Damrak is kind of a sort of Dutch Cancun kind of tourism circus at a certain point. And that's actually, speaking of the public transit, if you're going through that area during a a peak season, you need to allow extra time because sometimes there's so many pedestrians the trams can't get through. Damrak is kind of a problem for the locals with all the tourists. Yeah, days. most of my Dutch friends, when they cycle around town, they'll get close to the that center, and then they actually go all the way around the main canal zone right. because there are a, a lot of visitors there. There, there's a few towns in Europe that actually have too many tourists for the locals: mm. Barcelona, Venice, and Venice, Venice right. uh, maybe Vienna, and uh, Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolinka, what is that like from a Dutch point of view? Do you feel like you overrun? Is it Does it put people in a bad mood, or do they just say, well, this is what butters our bread? I've seen it changing. So I lived in Amsterdam in the 90s for about 10 years, and still, I mean, I worked in tourism already, so tourists were there. But nowadays you can't compare it, and you just need to be very aware and careful, and there's all this noise. Uh, probably you don't want to hear this. I uh, want to hear what's that, all, yeah. From I the mean, Dutch point of view, what's the... People are a little bit upset. You need a balance. Like in, in Venice, there's no more balance. Right. I think in Vienna, there's still a balance because you have a larger population, mm-hmm. where in Amsterdam, it is the largest city of the Netherlands, but still, it's only 750,000 right. inhabitants. And if there's at a certain moment more tourists than locals or areas where the tourists are, because they're just at a very small area where they are, and that the locals don't want to go there anymore. People are loud and not respectful and coming out of the pubs. And and if you don't work in tourism... It's sort of like uh, an annoyance. And and yeah. there is this image of Amsterdam, of the red light districts and the marijuana shops and so on and the parties. The Dutch really know how to have a good party. You're, you're, what is it, the Queen's birthday party, the Queen's Day party? Uh, it's a king now. So it's now so it's it's a king's, king, party. king's Day so it goes from Queen's Day to King's Day, depending on who's on the throne. Yes. This is one of the greatest. Can you describe what that's like in Amsterdam? Yeah, so it's when it's the birthday of our king, which is William Alexander. It's one of the last days of April. Uh, we all just go nuts. 
So we'll dress in orange, we'll have some orange makeup, orange hair, we'll go out on the street, nobody goes to work, nobody goes to school, we'll set up some kind of gigantic flea market, or like, how would you call it, garage sale uh-huh. everywhere. Yeah. We'll reserve the little spot in front of the house or on the bridge or some kind of strategic place to sell more stuff. You can bake cookies, you can put your child with a guitar, uh, making some money that they, <laughs> there's music everywhere. It's, it's very cultural, so music festivals everywhere. And we'll drink. And there's so many boats in the canal, you can almost walk across the canal from boat to boat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> April, yeah. Every time I stumble into Amsterdam at that time of year, I just go, wow, this is an amazing, amazing... Have you been to the party, Tim? I got to that once, but I I thought it was such a fun part of Dutch hospitality that when it switched to King's Day, you had a lot of tourists who weren't necessarily following the the specifics of the Dutch royal family. So people showed up for Queen's Day. They showed up on the wrong day. And the Dutch, seeing all these people show up with their cooperatively orange shirts and everything, (laughs) said, okay, we'll throw another party. So they threw an impromptu kind of ad hoc Queen's Day, even though they didn't need to anymore, just to make sure they had a good time while they were there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Tendick and Rolinka Blooming about Amsterdam. Hey, Tim, let's pretend you're showing your friend around Amsterdam and you want a kind of an intimate walk along a canal that laces together a couple of interesting sights. The one that I, I recommended to a friend just a, about a week ago was he was going down to the Rijksmuseum and then uh, for somewhere to walk after that, if you come out to the Hedengracht, it's mm-hmm. the the kind of third one in of the of the outer canal. So Gracht means what? Gracht is canal. And Heron would be the big shots. Right? Yeah, Heron is, is the gentlemanry. The and it's, gentleman, You yeah. can get an insight into the Dutch perspective of, of how they ranked things, that mm-hmm. the, the princes are further out than the gentlemen, and it gives you a sense of hmm. how they view the aristocracy in a country. So the, 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 the gentleman's canal is first and the prince's canal is second? Is further out, yeah. Okay. So the, the top so of the hierarchy. what do you see along the Herengracht? If you walk along there, you can, you can see the, the floating flower market, which is always kind of fun mm-hmm. to see with all the cannabis starter sets and mm-hmm. people taking pictures with them. And then as you walk up, there's just such a row of beautiful houses. And especially on the turns, the houses that had more kind of acreage on, on the canal there with the greater windows, those tended to be the houses of the wealthiest citizens. Okay, so you paid according to how much canal frontage you had. And if the canal turns, people on the outside of the turn, you would have... A lot of canal frontage. They could sometimes slice them, but if you got it in that inner curve there, because yeah. of just the way it would be hard to get it, that yeah. really showed that you had Those were plenty where the of money highest end people would yeah. be. Yeah. yeah, so there's some fun ones. There's a house in there somewhere. I found it once and lost it again where John Adams stayed when he was over there. That's the amazing thing. You walk down the street and see these plaques of yeah. amazing people who stayed right there. And you could make a case that Amsterdam has physically has changed very little in, in several centuries. Absolutely. Hey, Rolinka, a very, very popular and sort of a quintessentially Dutch neighborhood is the Jordaan. And we were talking about how tourism is inundating Amsterdam, almost upsetting some of the local people. I would imagine if you lived in the Jordaan, that's your little peaceful enclave and suddenly you've got tour groups walking around taking selfies. How would you, as a tour guide, take somebody through the Jordaan to enjoy that characteristic slice of Amsterdam? First of all, I don't think that there's a lot of tour groups there that much. Okay. So that's that's a good thing. I, I think it's more individuals that like to stroll through the neighborhood, mm-hmm. maybe with with the use of their guidebook or so. Right. No, it's a lovely, lovely area where in the 17th century, the Jordan comes from the name Jardin. So like garden, it was uh, just outside of the big canals where the rich lived is where the the servants lived, the artisans lived. And that area was very much run down in the 1960s. And now they wanted to demolish houses. And now it's back uh, on the map and people really like to live there. 
because it's so much small scale and canals are smaller. Yeah. And it's one of those districts like the Marais in Paris or the Prince Lauenberg in Berlin, where it was working class and sort of uh, mm-hmm. access for the service people to get to the wealthier people, and then now it becomes quite trendy. Correct. Yeah. It's a, a desirable place to live. Oh, absolutely. And if you walk on a, just a quiet lane, you can find yourself completely away from the modern touristic world. Mm-hmm. What are some little images you might stumble onto? Oh, yeah, you would find, for example, a, a door that you can open, and behind it is a hofje. What is a hofje? A hofje is a little inner court, almost like a housing association, for example, for only women oh. or only Catholic women that already existed in the 17th century and still today there's women mainly women living in these kind of places, and they're open for tourists, but so you need you to know, know the where they are. So if you know the door to open, you step in, and you have a little courtyard with eight or ten humble cottages mm-hmm. surrounding a garden. That's like the Begenhof, but on a smaller scale? Yes. What else might you see if you're walking across a bridge in the Jordan? Houseboats. Houseboats. I just love the, uh, the way the canals and the gables of the houses and the people on bicycles. It all mixes together. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Amsterdam with Berlinka Blooming and Tim Tendick. Berlinka and Tim, thanks so much. Welcome. Thank you. Find out what kind of hiking trail lets you stop to sample a glass of local wine every few miles. We're exploring your options for a hiking vacation in Europe, next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. If you like to walk and would prefer to avoid the crowds of a city, our next guest has a suggestion. You can immerse yourself in another culture and enjoy nature at a leisurely pace on one of the great hiking routes in Europe. Cassandra Overby has assembled a new guide for planning a cultural hiking adventure for a day or for a lot longer. Her book is called Explore Europe on Foot. It features detailed information and photos from 15 major long-distance trails in Europe and includes options to nearby Turkey and Morocco. Cassandra joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the advantages of a walking vacation in Europe. Cassandra, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I just love your book because all I do is go to museums and cathedrals and galleries and and walk. I feel like I'm hiking in cities, you know. (laughs) But there's a whole other dimension to Europe. And every time I slip into that, I think, man, this is such a wonderland of things to do as you enjoy Europe. How did you first come to trying a long-distance hike? I actually kind of stumbled into it. I had been a traveler for a long time, and I was down in Guatemala at one point, and I had a breakup with travel because I just, I think I had seen too much, and suddenly it didn't really seem to matter to me anymore. And so when I met the man that I ended up marrying, he invited me on his big dream in life, which was a grand tour of Europe. So whereas I had done a ton of traveling, he didn't even have a passport. So I knew this was kind of a make-or-break-the-relationship kind of request. If he went on this big trip um, and came back months later, he wouldn't remember me. (laughs) So when I finally said yes, I would join him on this trip, I tried to do travel a lot different. And so to me, that meant trying to do something that I really love to do at home, which is walk. And it just so happens that walking, I found, is an even better way to see Europe and to travel than I had ever done before. So you walked with him. He went to Europe for his first time, and, and uh, you were kind of contributing to the itinerary, and it turned right. out to be a focus on walking. Right. And so, did that work out? Did you, you Apparently you, uh, you did have a good trip because you got married. Right, right. Yes, that all worked <laughs> out. But, you know, we just kind of eased our way into these walks, and we didn't know that they would become the focus of our trip. 
So we had planned on a trip that was five months long just in Europe, and it expanded to nine months. We were having that much fun. And even after this whole travel breakup that I had had. A breakup with travel, the the notion of travel, because you OD'd on it down in Guatemala or something like that. So you got to Europe, you met the right travel partner, and you hiked. Since then, where have you hiked? What are some of your all-time greatest hikes in Europe? So the Swiss Alpine Pass route is probably my true love when it comes to hiking in Europe. It's the first um, true multi-day trek that I did. But there's something so different. I mean, I really love the English way. That's the last part of the Camino de Santiago. The English way, in other words, you take the boat from England down to... So you actually go to Ferrol, which is where the British took their boats to in Spain, and then ah. you walk the rest of the five days um, so it's five to the days cathedral. to Santiago, right. whereas people who go from saint jean pied de port go 30 days or something right. like that. Right, Is that long enough to get the certificate? It is, So yeah. you can go to heaven and everything? Yes, exactly. Oh, five you days. You get your Compostela. Nice. Okay. Yes. So that's the English way, but it's in Spain. Right. And that's a cool trip because it has a finale. Mm-hmm. What's another good hike you did? There's a trail in Bavaria called King Ludwig's Way. Yeah. And this is another of my very favorites King because Ludwig, you have... King Ludwig, does it go to everybody's favorite castle? It does. It okay. actually ends right there <laughs> and you walk past to Fusen. Um, oh. And so that trail through the countryside of Bavaria is just incredible and all the history it highlights. You know, everybody who goes down there to Mad King Ludwig's Castle, they're charmed by the rolling, beautiful pastoral countryside. Right. And uh, I've, I've rented a bike and biked around there. It's just glorious. And to hike would mm-hmm. be just great. Well, the interesting thing is there's no more fitting way to honor a mad king than by walking a trail backwards. So that's actually what people do. You start where he died and you walk back to where he was born. <laughs> which is really a great way to do it. Oh, I see. Backwards in time. Right. Backwards well, I, I in time. I picture you walking backwards, no. <laughs> like some Monty Python movie or something. Okay, so walking forwards, but tracing his life backwards. Yes. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, another great hike you've enjoyed? The Alsace wine route through France. It's Alsace. one of the lesser-known wine regions, uh-huh. but really incredible. You have a chain of medieval towns about every three miles. Nice. So a different place to stop and have a glass of wine and admire the architecture. So you've collected these in your book with all the insights, and you've got to do the hike to write about it. Since you've been writing this book, are you diligently taking notes in the mountain hut at night to collect all of your tips from the walker? How do you make a good guidebook about the great hikes of Europe? So I actually look a lot like Inspector Gadget when I'm on trail because I'm following GPX tracks, I'm creating GPX tracks, I'm taking all of the photos. So I took about 95% of the photos in my book, which I'm really proud of. And then also making audio notes, and then at night making written notes of my big impressions. And so, yes, I've hiked every single trail in my book, plus more. Okay, because we've got an email from Kathy in Centralia, Washington, and and she writes, What gadget or item have you recently acquired that has enhanced your walking travels? Oh, hands down. So you're like, you've got a lot of gadgets. What do you recommend? Hands down, my very favorite gadget is hiking with GPX tracks. So I've been a walker for a long time, never bothered to use GPX tracks because I always use paper maps. But GPX tracks have revolutionized my hiking because it's so nice to just be able to follow an app on your smartphone, see where you are. So this is like when we use um, Google Maps to drive to a friend's house in in a city in the United States. It's basically Google Maps for the trail. Are you literally online or do you download it so you can access it without being... Uh, You can uh, download it and have it available. Because um, I would think that's important because you'll be hiking where you can't get online, right? Yes. So you're hiking. When you leave your last bit of access, you've got it all downloaded. And you've got all that functionality as you hike. It's amazing. As long as your battery is good. Right. And battery issue is a big issue because especially when you're using using GPX tracks, your battery drains usually twice a day. Even if you've 
downloaded it, so you're just accessing yeah, some things there. Because so it, you're, a, you have the screen on so much. Okay. And a lot of times, you know, if the so weather is So this is, is interesting. So a lot of people are probably down on paper maps, but all of a sudden the paper map is pretty nice if your phone is dead. Oh, always have a paper map as backup. Very important. Yeah, okay. very important. So GPS tracks? GPX what? tracks. GPX and there's GPX an tracks. app called Gaia. And this app is $20 to download on your smartphone. It eliminates the need for any standalone GPS device like a Garmin. And it's a lot easier to use. It's really intuitive. You can just upload maps into the program and then set start, and it will just lead you exactly where you need to go. Whoa, this is a different way of hiking. And this is Gaia. How do you spell that? G-A-I-A. It's amazing. And the nice thing, too, is, you know, it's easy sometimes to miss a junction and to find yourself in the middle of nowhere and not sure how to get back on trail. But when you have that GPX tracks, because it shows you exactly where you are in the direction you're moving, it can easily lead you right back to the trail. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. She's an expert on hiking the long-distance trails of Europe. She provides detailed information about 15 of her favorite trails and another seven one-day treks that you can take in her guide called Explore Europe on Foot. We have links to her website and trail information with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Patty's calling in from Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Patty, have you been hiking in Europe? I have. Went for the first time this past year. And where did you go and what was it like? In Scotland, I hiked the West Highland Way, which is from Glasgow up to Fort William. Okay. And so it was about 100 miles. About 100 miles. And why did you like it? Uh, I liked it because it's so stunningly beautiful. The people were friendly. I had a great time on the trail. I went solo. So I've done a lot of backpacking in the States as well. Right. And And um, I've gone solo. a, a, A woman going solo. And a woman going solo. So Scotland, they speak English, so I didn't have problems there. But my Mm -hmm. concerns for other parts, and I can't wait to read your book, is regarding the language and then also a female going solo. So this is good. Cassandra, first of all, have you done any of your hikes uh, solo? I have, And what's it like to be all alone in the wild wilderness of Europe as a woman? Are you comfortable? You know, I get that question a lot from women, especially other women hikers. And the absolute truth is I feel safer walking in Europe in the middle of the night than I do in broad daylight in my neighborhood in Seattle. The truth is, you know, you just are safer there. So the things that I recommend are, especially if you haven't hiked very much by yourself, choose a popular trail. So it's nice to have other people to bump into. You know, that's a good point. There's really no reason, I don't think, to choose a trail because it's off the beaten path. I mean, if everybody does it, it's still okay. It means there's more mountain uh, huts where they serve nice lunches along the way. Right. And the truth is when you're doing one of these hikes that goes hut to hut or village to village, you kind of get in a walking bubble with the same people. Mm -hmm. And so you may bump into the same five people each day and, you know, you're generally staying in. Because a lot of these are done in daily increments, right? So it's just like the first day people do that, the next day people, and you'll see these same hikers at the uh, Matt Ratzenlager, the the hut with the mattresses right? up in the loft, and you'll see them at the lunch spot the next day and so on. Exactly. And so, you know, it's nice, if you're a solo traveler especially, to be able to make friends like that. And then mm-hmm. you have people who are checking in on you on trail and looking out for you. Very nice. And you get the very best of being solo because you don't have to hike with anyone, and the very best of companionship because there are people there looking out for you when you want. Patty, thanks for your call. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Cassandra, I want to talk about just a couple of the trails that really picked my curiosity. I think if I was going to do one major hike in Europe, I might want to do the Tour du Mont Blanc. 
And this is a long, long trip, like 12 days if you do the whole thing. But you've laid out a 40-mile, four-day loop. Right. It sounds like it's great because you're mixing all this wonderful Italian and French cuisine and culture. And you're hiking around Europe's tallest mountain, Mount Blanc, which is about in the neighborhood of Mount Rainier. Right. Can you give me a little insight into this hike that goes around Mont Blanc? This is a trail that a lot of people choose for some type of bucket list adventure. So whether it's to celebrate retirement or a big birthday or just to be able to train for something, because this is a trail for those who love mountains. You're surrounded by mountains and the high peak of Mont Blanc that you circle around. But it's also a really great study in culture because you have these tiny alpine huts and there really is an alpine culture. And so you get the alpine food, whether, you know, in my 40 section, it's the French food and then the Italian food. You get those bits of culture. And there's probably no more scenic trail in the world than it's that It's a one. lot of up and down, though, right? Oh, a lot of up and down. <laughs> You're probably Every going, this is torture. But you get to the top, and you go, okay, that was worth it. And then you get into the hut that night, and you have a great meal with well, all these cool people. Right? And it's funny because you hike up there, and every time you think you're done hiking up, there's more up to go. So do I understand you start in Chamonix, and you swing around, and you finish in Cormayeur? Right. And then from Cormayeur, you can actually have a little finale by going up to a Hellbrunner Point and over to a Guimadi. Yes. And so you hike around the mountain, and then you go up and over it to get back to Chamonix. Right. Or you could go through the long tunnel, but that would be boring. Right. So if the weather is good, take the chairlift there. And if it's not good, then you just take the bridge on a bus. Okay. For something quite a bit different, you talk very uh, well in the book about the Mosul hike, uh, the hike along the Mosul Valley in Germany. A lot of people dream about going to the the Rhine River for the vineyards and the half-timbered villages and the ruined castles. But really their image of the Rhine, I think, is the Mosul. It's the sleepy little sister of the Rhine. Right. Uh, Talk about hiking on the Mosul. What's that hike like? You know, the Mosul is a really popular region for river cruises because you have these amazing 180-degree turns in the river. But the best-kept secret is that actually the best views are from the top, from when you're hiking, because that's when you can look down and see the turns in the river. Because you've got a photograph that's, if ever there was a hairpin turn, this is a textbook example of what a hairpin looks like. Yes. That river comes down and does a complete 180-degree loop. Yes. And then you've got this wonderful corduroy hills with vineyards. You know, it's just really an amazing and view. But you had to hike up to the hill to, to get that view. Right. But it's actually not that much elevation gain. Mm-hmm. So you can, speaking of elevation gain, hike across the steepest vineyard in the world, which is the Kalmont. Is that what the Via Ferrata? It is. That means the, uh, the, the iron, iron Way. The Iron Way. Yeah. And you're carabinered up and you're clicking onto that cable? or, or what? So with this one, it's actually more of an intro via ferrata, so you're not cabled at all. Okay. And you're walking across, so you don't really have to do much up and down. Okay, but you just hang onto that Right, cable. so you're climbing little ladders, uh-huh. you're holding onto cables, and you're getting to see these vineyard workers trying to work one row at a time because they can't go up or down. And this cable is put there for recreational hikers? Yes. There are industrial cables uh-huh. that they hook their carts so to, this is, but this is specifically for hikers. So anybody can just use it. You don't need to ask permission. You don't need to pay. You don't need to have gear. Right. So if you're and if you're reasonably fit, you can do this via Ferrata on the Mosul River wine Yes. Hike. And one of the best parts, too, is that you can hike up. What I always put in my pack is a bottle of cold wine there because the specialty is white wine. And then you can look down when you're having your glass of wine and see the Roman ruins that are right below you. Oh, it sounds great. So that's one to keep in mind. Cassandra Overby recommends that you use your vacation time to clear your mind and enjoy nature in Europe. She profiles long-distance trails and even one-day wanders that you can explore from Iceland to Turkey, Germany to Morocco in her book, Explore Europe on Foot. 
Her website is CassandraOverby.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Carol's calling from Bel Air in Florida. Carol, have you been thinking about a hike in Europe? I have. I've looked at the GR5 for years, and I find that very appealing, but I wonder how doable it is, because I've looked at it for so many years. I'm in the older bracket now. Is that something that we could do? GR5, what is that? It goes, it's a long trail that goes from the Hook of Holland. It actually, there's part of it starts in Scotland, but it picks up on the continent in the Hook of Holland Hmm. and goes down, actually goes through part of the French mountains and then goes down to the Mediterranean. Do you know that one, Cassandra? So I have not hiked the GR5. I've hiked a lot of the other GRs. um, What what does GR mean? Grand Randonnée. So they're um, named after French routes, Mm -hmm. but they basically mean grand route. Okay. And that is pretty grand because it goes from the Hook of Holland up by Rotterdam all the way down to the Mediterranean. Right. So the GR trails cover several countries. You can crisscross Europe on them. The important thing to remember with the GR trails is that nobody really writes about the GR specifically, like a very long one. What you want to do is find resources that talk about smaller sections of them. Because, I mean, some of these GRs are like 1,500 miles long, and you Uh, won't find a guidebook for that. So it's best to be able to see it and modify it to your your vacation time. Yes, yes. So what I recommend, too, is research the most iconic sections of those trails, Mm -hmm. see what other people have done, and then try to find resources to match that. Like there's a site called GR Infos, I believe it's .com, and they have a lot of information on smaller chunks of the GRs. Good luck with that, Carol. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Cassandra, I noticed in your book you've got the Cinque Terre as a major hike, but you call it Cinque Terre 2.0. Right. Now, any of us who have been to my favorite little port towns on the Italian Riviera know that you can walk through the vineyards between the five towns, the Cinque Terre, but you expand it. Tell me what you do for 2.0 Cinque Terre. For 2.0, I actually start a little farther north in Levanto. Mm-hmm. And when you start in Levanto, you get to actually have a little more of the sleepy experience that Cinque Terre used to have because you're you're further off the beaten path. And so you're starting in this sleepier little town and you get some great elevation as you're going into the main Cinque Terre towns and some great views looking back at all five. So it's one of the best photo opportunities, actually. So you can see all five towns from one bluff yes. across the bay. Yes. And then you're still walking through... Beautiful orchards and vineyards and... Uh, yeah, olive and, groves. And in the Cinque Terre now, the trails are almost dangerous because there's so many cruise travelers just piling in at the same time. But right. none of those cruise travelers make that longer walk no. from Levanto to Monterosso. Correct. I think people often underestimate the Cinque Terre walk. They've heard a lot about it, so they just think, oh, it's going to be a walk in the park. And they're very surprised when they get there, and it actually is quite steep, and there are a lot of stairs, and they don't bring enough water when it's really hot out. I get a lot of people upset with me because I just say do it. Right, (laughs) right. They should get a real hiking book, somebody like yours, (laughs) I think, because it is is easy to underestimate the heat and the elevation gain. And uh, these are tough trails with huge steps made on these rocks through these terraces. And then with the occasional rainfall, it can get very slick. So this is one trail, actually probably the biggest trail that I think people really underestimate. Okay, so you uh, fell in love hiking in Europe with European hikes and your husband, and you've got a lot of hikes yet to go. Is your husband still traveling with you? He is, And what, what hike do you guys dream about together? On our next trip, we're actually going to Austria, and we're going to do some family-friendly hiking with our baby. She's nine months old. And so we'll do a lake town and then a mountain town, 
And that'll be our next big adventure. Hey, Cassandra Overby, thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on your book, Explore Europe on Foot. I'm going to try one of these myself. Great. Thank you. Next, let's take a little time to check in with you, our listeners, to hear how your summer vacation plans are coming along. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Is Europe in your travel plans? I'm Rick Steves. That's been my specialty for nearly 40 years. Let's check in with a few of our listeners right now to find out where you're thinking of going and if you need a little help with your travel plans. Our number is 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Craig in Estero, Florida is getting us started. Craig, where do you want to go? So, actually... I don't know, and that's kind of why I'm calling. Um, I'm going to be taking my first trip to Europe, specifically uh, the U.K., here in June. And this is the first time I'll be out of the U.S. besides uh, Canada once. So I'm pretty excited, but you know, one of the main reasons I chose England to start, or the U.K. in general, was because I'm kind of uh, really into the whole medieval era and the history that England has to offer. You know, the typical knights in shining armor and oh, yeah. castles. And and that's kind of what I envisioned when I would take my first Europe trip. So uh, I have a 14-day itinerary. And, uh, again, I thank you for uh, a lot of the material you provided, especially your YouTube videos, because that's actually helped me a lot uh, kind of judge my itinerary for right. uh, the 14-day trip. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for maybe your advice on the best destinations, large and or small, off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. That would offer a true, authentic medieval experience. Wow! You know, whether well, it's castles well, that's or perfectly understandable that you'd be um, in preparation for your first trip to Europe, starting in Britain because that's the easiest place to start, and then interested in medieval stuff because we don't have that in, in the United States, so it's something new. And uh, you got London, and you got the countryside. London, of course, is an important city right through the Middle Ages. And while you're in London, there's plenty you can do there. Uh, in the Tower of London, you can see the you know the the big fortress that protected the crown jewels and all that. Uh, so you want to see the Tower of London. You'll also want to go into Westminster Abbey. It's the soul, the artistic, the spiritual, the literary soul of of England is there, celebrated in all of these amazing tombs. You can tour the Houses of Parliament, and in there, there's a huge hall. This Westminster Hall. It's got these medieval oak beams that are centuries and centuries old. Another thing that you might want to not overlook, that's all architecture I've been talking about, but if you go into the Victorian Albert Museum, it's just an amazing collection of all of the artifacts through the ages. You could spend days in that place, and I would make a point to uh, check out medieval lifestyles there. You can see exhibits that show shoes back from a day when there wasn't right shoe and left shoe, but all the shoes were called straights. They're just perfectly straight, so you wear them on either foot. (laughs) You've got old armor, you've got old fashions, and so on. And then also in London, there's a company called London Walks. And London Walks just collects all sorts of historians and entertainers and actors and so on, and it turns them loose doing guided tours through various slices of London and its history. And you would find some uh, medieval-themed walks that take you back in time just as you explore the back lanes of London. So... All of that would be a nice first look at London. Now, after you do London, you're going to go into the countryside, 
And in England, in the countryside, you've got great castles, you've got great cathedrals, and you've got great sort of mansions that are remnants of medieval rich people. I mean, if you had a lot of money in the old days, you could build an amazing castle or palace. So do some studying that way. And there's a very gimmicky and commercial and sort of um, touristy castle called Warwick Castle, W-A-R-W-I-C-K. And Warwick has all the torture dungeons and all the ramparts and, and all the you know, armory where you can see the old um, swords and shields and so on. So that'd be a a very uh, exciting visit. I will remind you, a lot of the castles around the countryside of England look medieval, but they're actually Victorian. And when you hear the word Victorian, it's from the rule of Queen Victoria, who ruled, you know, in the last half of the uh, 19th century, in the last half of the 1800s. I think she died in the year 1900. So uh, a lot of Victorian stuff is done romanticizing medieval England, So you want to be careful. The pointiest stuff is often rebuilt in the Victorian age, and it's faux medieval or neo-Gothic. So uh, does that sound like it'll be any help for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Rick. That's great. Thank you for that advice. I'm actually planning on Warwick, and one was on the radar, and I'm I'm staying at, uh, I believe it to be uh, medieval or Renaissance at least, uh, Thornberry Castle for one of my nights. Oh, nice. I'm looking forward to all that. Do remember, Craig, that the greatest concentration of medieval castles was in northern Wales. And all of these castles were um, English castles built to keep the Welsh down. And uh, it just took a lot of castles to keep those people um, orderly, you know. And when you go there, you'll see state-of-the-art castles from the Middle Ages. And those are really quite impressive. Warwick is the Disney kind of castle. But if you drive a few more hours uh, into Wales, you can visit three or four castles there that really are the real thing. Thanks for your call, Craig, and let us know how your trip goes. Thank you, Rick. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Sarah's calling in from Wilmington in Delaware. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rick. You're calling me because you have a trip coming up? Are you going to Europe somewhere? No, we're going to Italy. Oh, you're going to Italy. Well, that's exciting. That's my favorite place in Europe. Italy's one country on the, on the south side of Europe, so you're going to have a wonderful time to go there. What are you thinking about? What do you want to do when you go there? I want to go to places like kid places that kids would like to go. In other words, you don't want to just go to churches and museums all the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't blame you. I don't blame you a bit. One thing you might want to do is remember that In these different towns, they have um, bicycles that you can rent. Do you like to ride bikes? Yeah. Also, you can sleep on a farm where they have all sorts of animals. Would you like to sleep on a farm in in the countryside? Yeah. So remember to tell your mom and dad about the farmhouse bed and breakfast. This word in Italy is agriturismo. Can you say that? Uh, agriturismo? Well, why don't you just say farmhouse bed and breakfast? So if you stay in a farmhouse bed and breakfast, you, you'll get woken up by the, the roosters in the morning. And what are you going to eat when you go there? Do you like pizza? Yeah. Here's gelato. A, gelato. You know your Italian words. That's good. Spaghetti? Yeah. Now, spaghetti. When, when you have a pizza, do you like pepperoni on it? Yeah. Now, here's a little warning for you, because, Sarah, in Italy, when you say pepperoni, you're not going to get nice spicy meat. You're going to get green peppers. So don't say pepperoni. You say diavolo. Okay. Okay. And now here's something I want you to do with your whole family. You're going to go to a gelateria. What do you think they sell in a gelateria? A gelato? Yeah. And you're going to order your favorite one. Here's what I always do, Sarah. At a gelateria, I ask to taste three different tastes. And I don't even know the words, but I can look at it and I can see that looks chocolatey or that looks minty 
or that looks like um, something very fruity, and I'll try them. They give you a little tiny taste, and then you choose which one you want. Okay. But then here's what I want you to do with your family. You're all going to get a gelato, and then you're going to walk around in the street because everybody's out walking in the street before dinner time. It's called the passeggiata. And you're going to hang out together, and you're going to stroll down the street licking your gelato, marveling at all the interesting people that are in the street. There's kids, and there's grandmas and grandpas, and there's people on bicycles and everything. And that's how Italians all come together in the evening. They just all go out in the street and get their ice cream, and they take a stroll together. Sometimes I see that when I go to Italy. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Have you been to Italy before already? Yeah, I go, we go every summer. Oh, my goodness. Well, you could write your own book. Okay, so what's the best thing you're going to do on this next trip? Eat gelato. Eat gelato. High culture. All right. Well, you just have a lot of fun, and let us know how your trip goes afterwards, okay? Okay. And in Italy, they say bon viaggi. I think that means have a good trip. Bon viaggi. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're dreaming about gelato in Italy. We're talking travel. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And JB's on the line from Titusville in Florida. Hi, JB. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. Where are your travel dreams taking you? Well, we've got uh, dreams galore, but uh, our next uh, impending uh, travel dream regards uh, my wife and I returning to Germany with our grandson. He's graduating from high school, and we promised as his gift that we would take him back to Germany where we have taken his two brothers. But this is a little different. We've known how to plan the other ones kind of. Uh, because of our time over there uh, when I was in the military. But this guy wants to be an architect, and he's starting right off in his college career studying architecture. And we wanted to kind of model the trip based on architectural uh, wonders and uh, variety that we know exists over there, but we don't know exactly where to go. Well, there's certainly a lot of inspirational architecture in Germany. Are you going to be traveling all over Germany, or are you going to let his interests sort of... uh put together the itinerary? Well, hopefully a combination. We'd like to get different regions represented. We're going to fly into Berlin, for example, uh-huh. and eventually go to the uh, Schwarzwald and south to the Bavarian region and the Frankfurt area. And we'd like to get into what used to be East Germany as well. A right. bit. But other than that, we'd like to follow his taste. And right. if there's differences in architecture in those areas, we'd like to point this. Well, you know, you're going into Berlin, and outside of Berlin is Potsdam, and Potsdam was bombed pretty heavily in the war, and it's been rebuilt, and uh, they're just doing... You know, if I was a, a young architect student or something, I would find inspiration in, in how Europeans are designing their cities. And they had this horrible war that gave them a chance to start over, and a lot of the cities had to make a choice. Are we going to rebuild in the medieval way, which was bombed out, or are we going to build it in the new Manhattan way, they call it? And uh, each of these cities does it differently. And Potsdam is just doing a glorious job of rebuilding all of the iconic palaces and so on from different architectural ages. And there's a lot of beautiful Baroque architecture in the town center of Potsdam. And you can go out to the Sanssouci Park. And that's where uh, the the Prussian uh, Kaiser uh, would have his uh, palaces. And uh, Sanssouci, I think it means no worries. It's just a gorgeous palace. And I was just out there checking out that. And there's a place called the New Palace, which is just mammoth. So you'll want to check out that. In Berlin, you've got the whole Bauhaus thing, and architects are enamored with the Bauhaus movement. I think back in the 1920s, it was sort of a modern, practical sort of functionalism. And uh, the Bauhaus just celebrated its 100th anniversary. So I think that would be a good theme when you're in Berlin. 
there's a lot of guided walking tours, and you can look at uh, remaining Nazi architecture. You can look at surviving social realism and uh, architecture from the time of the Soviet uh, occupation. Uh, there's a street called, uh, it was called Stalin Alley, and now I believe it's called Marx Alley, but uh, it was just the showcase. It was bombed out in World War II, and the Soviets rebuilt it as a showpiece of their great German capital. And it's just the very best, kind of what we think of as Stalin Gothic, made in the 1950s and so on. And today it's sort of becoming trendy and they're fixing it up. But I just find it really fascinating to look at what the Soviets were building to show off. But you'll want to see Berlin. And then when you go to Frankfurt, Frankfurt's nickname is Bankfurt. And it's got these amazing skyscrapers. And I really like 21st century skyscraper architecture. In Frankfurt, you can go to the tallest buildings in all of Germany. And you can go to the very top and you can learn what is the ecological sort of values, the environmental values, the the people-friendly values of these uh, amazing skyscrapers in Germany's Manhattan. Frankfurt Mm, was bombed... Green skyscrapers? Green skyscrapers, yeah. They have parks inside of them. In Germany, you'll notice skyscrapers have windows that open. I didn't realize it until I saw skyscrapers with open windows because in the United States, you never see an open window on a skyscraper. But that's part of the sort of the the green ethic of building and creating workspaces in Germany is that workers need to have actual fresh air, a breeze coming in, and they can't have too many square feet of floor space without open windows. Uh, Consequently, you've got a lot of atriums inside that are beautiful parks and so on. So I think Frankfurt is a great place to go if you're interested in architecture. I'm going to sound like an expert to my grandson. (laughs) I think it's a pretty (laughs) cool thing to take your grandson over there and check out that. It's fun to have a theme when you're planning a trip. Well, you've given us some great ideas. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a great time, and thanks for calling. We're checking in with listener travel plans on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. David's on the line from Leesburg in Virginia. David, thanks for calling. Hey, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are your travel dreams taking you? Well, this summer, some friends of ours is renting a house outside of Provence in some little village called, I don't know whether it's Uze or Uzez, but we wanted to, to extend it a little bit. So we've never been to Spain, so we're going to fly into Barcelona, and we've always stupidly avoided getting a, a personal guide. So we're thinking about getting a personal guide for the first time for a couple of days in Barcelona. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, cause I've seen you do that with people. A lot of times when you'll have somebody take you around a major European city, and it oh, seems yeah. like really a much more valuable way of doing it. Uh, if, if you can afford it, it's a wonderful splurge. It's my favorite um, investment in Europe is to have a, a local guide. You know, I think uh, the cool thing about a local guide is they'll meet you at your hotel, they'll tailor the walk to your interests, and uh, you'll have a friend by the end of that time. And, uh, you know, you can hire a guide for half a day or a full day. You can hire a guide to go out into the countryside if you want. If you make the reservation in advance, the guide can make reservations for you for places that are hard to get in. And that's a big deal these days in uh, places like Barcelona. It's a lot of the most popular sites you just can't get into unless you were thoughtful enough to make a reservation in advance. So that's a good deal. Now, you said you're going to start in southern France. Is that right? No, we're going to start in Barcelona. Oh, I see. So you'll we'll spend a couple of days there. Okay. And then the question is, it's one of these towns, you know, you think you're never going to go back to the rest of your life. We're thinking about possibly going through Andorra only because it's there. And then from there, go up through, see the old town of Carcassonne. Oh, yeah. And there's another t- 
big city there called Montpelier, but I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't know Montpelier. I, I know um, Andorra and Carcassonne. You know, I went up to Carcassonne for the same reason you did, just because it's there. We went there to include it in a TV show, and when I was done shooting that, I just thought, well, I don't think it's that great, but the cool thing is we went there so you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, it's a long drive up in the mountains for Andorra, and um, the payoff is not great. But I'm not saying not go there. It's just recognize that if you wanted, you, there's other places that I think might be more interesting. I love what's called the Maginot Line of the 13th century. It's the Qatar Castles that are uh, near Carcassonne up in the mountains. These are amazing, dramatic castles that were hideaways for the Qatars. That was a heretical group that was being, it was like a genocide against these uh, people that just did not, they just refused to worship in the Roman Catholic way. They were Christians, but they didn't want to be Catholics. And uh, that was just not permissible in the Middle Ages. And they had their last stands and they hid out up in these mountains. And today you can visit these castles. There's a whole string of them. And they're quite dramatic. And, of course, Carcassonne is the greatest medieval walled city in all of Europe, so you'll want to check out that. It's touristy, but it's just a delight, especially in the evening. It's all floodlit, and you can walk around and just let your imagination go wild. Nearby, two resort towns on the Mediterranean coast that are really laid back and and comfortable and and not that resorty like a lot of places you might expect would be Collioure, and that's in the French uh, side of the border, and Cadiz—that's that's the home of Salvador Dali on the Spanish side. And I was just in both of these towns, and I, I, I love these towns, and they're about an hour drive apart on a dramatic drive right along the coast over the border of Spain and France. And those are two towns in the region when you're driving north from uh, Barcelona that would be worth having on your radar. Okay. No, because we're, we're just we're trying to fill a week, you know, including the time in Barcelona and then the trip on the way to Provence. Yeah, well, there's lots to see and do. Of course, you can go Pandora. That's the Pyrenees Mountains, so there's all sorts of fun in the Pyrenees. You could, if you wanted to put in more miles, head up to Basque Country, which is fascinating. It's probably more than what you want to do, but um, I would say Cadiz for Salvador Dali uh, lore in a beautiful beach town in Spain. Salvador Dali was he was the first person in Spain to see the sunrise. His bedroom was set up so he could. He's the farthest east in Spain, and he could see that sunrise. And uh, it's just a fun town, very beautiful surroundings. And then you drive across the border to Coyor, which is just a laid-back, charming, convivial French, not a resort town, just a, a port town on the Mediterranean. Then you go inland to Carcassonne, and then you'd head over to Provence. And there's a lot more, I would say, in Provence than there is in the area between Barcelona and Provence. So personally, I would consider getting to Provence a little earlier and focusing on all of the great rewarding sightseeing there is in that area. But you can go to France all your life and never run out of great things to see and do. <laughs> okay. Well, that's very helpful. Thanks for calling. Have yeah, a good time. Hey, thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. 
and Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.